Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Dischem Medical Mondays. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. Today we're going to be speaking audiology, and we have with us Romy Markle from Hear Care Plus, audiologist. Welcome, Romy. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much uh, for having me. Okay. So I don't know if uh, most people know the difference between, um, sometimes people confuse audiology, speech therapy, ENT, um, hearing tests. So just tell us, what exactly does an audiologist do? So the role of the audiologist is to prevent, diagnose, and manage hearing disorders as well as balance disorders in individuals across all age groups. Okay, so what? Uh, maybe that's how we can break it up today, uh, speak about audiology in age groups. So um, let's first talk about newborns. How do we know that a baby is hearing properly and what tests do we do for them? So um, technology has really helped uh, all industries, but especially the audiological industry, in that we have an amazing piece of equipment called an OAE, which is short for Autoacoustic Emission, and it allows us to test a newborn's hearing in a very non-invasive um, manner. So essentially the audiologist places a little probe in the newborn's ear, which sends a signal into the cochlea, which is the organ of hearing, and that detects um, if there is a si- if there is a function of in the cochlea and it sends signal back to the piece of equipment which then indicates to the audiologist if the cochlea is functioning. Essentially it's allowed us to gain information regarding hearing from birth so much earlier than previous testing allowed. Okay what was the previous testing do you know? Very rudimentary we would use rattles, shakers, it was quite um, subjective in that we were relying on our viewing a child's response and behavioral response to sound, whereas this is objective as the machine and the technology is giving you the reading. Okay, so should every child be tested or who should be tested? Yes, World Health Organization does recommend, and there are great attempts happening to roll out newborn national newborn hearing screening programs. Currently in South Africa, in the government sector, not all newborns will receive a hearing test. There are protocols that have been in place which allow us to identify babies who are at risk for a hearing loss, and they will then receive an OAE in the government sector. In the private sector, specifically net care hospitals, for example, have um, just this past year in June 2019 established a newborn hearing screening program. So essentially... Every baby born in a net care hospital across South Africa will be eligible for a newborn hearing test. Okay, so what can you describe exactly when it happens and how it's done? So on day two of testing, the audiologist will come and meet the mom. We do wait for day two after birth because... Um, there might be still some vernix, which is kind of the coating which covers the baby's body, might be sitting in the ear canal, which would then give a false uh, reading and indicate a hearing loss, which may not be present. So on day two, the audiologist will come and introduce themselves to the mom and then we'll proceed with the testing. As mentioned, it's non-invasive, it's not painful, it's just a probe placed in the ear and the test has a duration of five to ten minutes. 
Okay, and what will you be able to tell? You mentioned um, that you can tell cochlear function, so what do you tell the parents after the test? So essentially it isn't a test of the amount of hearing, it is rather a pass-fail or what we call a pass-refer. So a pass will indicate that the cochlear is functioning. It won't tell us how much the baby is hearing, but it will let us know that they are hearing. And a refer, we often tell parents not to become alarmed if there is a refer because it could still be vernix in the ear canal or a little bit of fluid. Um, in which case we would retest two weeks later. And if they refer again on that, we then would implement further testing as required. Okay, so the, you get a, let's just say hypothetically you get a refer on the test, then you decide to do some more. I don't know, invasive or deeper testing, what's, what's the next step? So what we would do is then six weeks post-birth, we would repeat the OAE again. If they fail that OAE, then what we can do is something called an ABR, which is an auditory brainstem response. So again, non-invasive, um, whereby we place electrodes on the baby's forehead and on their earlobes. And again, it uses technology to measure whether the auditory brainstem is giving a response um, via the whole auditory system. Okay, so that's, so that's more detailed than yeah, Sorry, the, I'm getting a little bit technical. No problem, yeah. that's more detailed than the OAE in that it tests the functioning of the cochlea, the, well ner- the, the nerve, nerve behind yes. it, and all the way to the brainstem. So Correct. not only can you see... If there's a problem, you can almost localize to see where the problem would be. Exactly. And the other additional information that your ABR, your auditory brainstem response, will give you is we can do what we call threshold testing. So there we're actually able to determine how much or how little the baby is hearing, which then further allows us to make um, interventions if a child would then require a hearing aid or we can take it from there. What's the youngest age that you know children have been fitted with hearing aids? From three months. Three months, well, okay. So then I imagine then you would send to an ENT and they would do further investigation. Yes, it's very important to send to the ENT to determine what is the underlying cause of the hearing loss. And sometimes we're not able to do to determine an underlying cause, but very often we would want to rule out factors such as genetic components because that might affect future children in the family or other children in the family. Um, and it's yeah, just overall it's important to determine where where what is the underlying cause of that hearing loss. Okay, great. So let's uh, change the scenario. You do an OAE and the child has uh, passed both sides. When again would a child then need to see an audiologist or have their hearing tested? World Health Organization advocates to have an annual hearing test from the age of naught to six years. So that begs the question, a lot of parents come to us and say, but I had a hearing test last year, why do I need, why does my child need a hearing test again? And the reason is that the, and Dr. Gerson, you might be able to expand a little bit more on this, is that the whole ear and auditory system from naught to six years is still quite immature and it only reaches adult maturity between six and eight years. And because of that immaturity, children do become prone to middle ear infections. So although you may not be aware that your child has a hearing loss, and in this case it would most likely be a temporary hearing loss, they may well have passed their hearing test in the previous year and then developed a middle ear infection or even fluid behind the eardrum in the middle ear and that will then affect their hearing. So annual hearing tests are very important, not only to look at hearing, but also to assess the health status of the ear. Okay, and 
so you said from every year from zero until six years. Six years old. And what do you do in those tests? Is it the same OAE test or is it a, a different test as well? So from naught to three years, it's quite difficult to get a child to cooperate and on a subjective hearing test. So between naught and three years, it's really nice to use that OAE because it is an objective measure of the child's, t- of the child's ear. So typically your audiologist will first take a look inside the ear with a little light, which allows to check for wax or um, any sort of blockage. A Lego piece is quite common um, Or any other obstruction And then we would do something called A tympanogram Which allows us to look at the health status Of the middle ear And then we would do the OAE From the age of about 3 years We find that children are not able to cooperate On more subjective tests And there we would do the very typical test Where we put the headphones on the child's ear And they have to listen for the birdie And clap for the beep And that allows us to do an actual um, test Of the level of their hearing Okay, and that's from 3 years on When they can cooperate Yes, between 3 and 4 We're normally able to start to get reliable pure tone testing. Okay, and uh, as you said, the child's middle ear and the ear um, as a whole keep on changing. There might be fluid behind the ear. This because of the eustachian tube problems or um, fluid in the middle ear. And obviously this can affect the child's speech. If they're not hearing properly, they're not going to speak properly. Most certainly. We see that the effects of hearing loss in children affect three things. The first is the social the emotional and the educational development of a child and language come falling in under educational. So um, emotionally, if a child is not hearing correctly, they're not going to be hearing their, their parents' voices, their teachers, their friends, their siblings, which then causes a breakdown in communication. So it has a psychological effect on the child. Um, language is very much dependent on getting the information via the auditory system. So if there is a hearing loss, it most certainly can affect a child's language development. And it's very common. Again, you can let me know uh, if it, you see this in your practice. But we'll hear, have a case of a parent coming in, their child isn't talking, and um, quite often they find fluid behind the eardrum. They then do have a set of grommets put in, and within a few weeks we see a big improvement in their language. And that is because they then started to hear correctly. For sure, grommets can be life-changing from um, that point of view, from a developmental point of view, and also um, from a vestibular point of view. Sometimes children with fluid in their middle ears, um, they're stumbling, they have delayed milestones, walking to crawling, I mean crawling to... Uh, standing and standing to walking and uh, the middle ear is dynamic it keeps on changing so obviously very important to be checked out have a hearing test and a middle ear test especially in that age from one to three where there's so much uh, input and so much uh, growth and development this is medical monday brought to you with compliments of discam pharmacists who care Okay, let's move on to the the next age group then. So then you, we said after three, we're going to be doing uh, a more subjective hearing test. So you put the child in a booth? Yes, so we go into a soundproof booth and we put some headphones on. And there's two categories that we do. So there's uh, what we call play audiometry, where you obviously have to incentivize children uh, in that age group. They're not going to really want to cooperate just for fun. So we will, for example, say every time you hear the birdie, you're going to put the Lego in the box. And at the end, they can build a nice tower with the Lego. And essentially, they just need to respond every time we present a beep. And that really allows us to then test what is the softest sound that they are able to hear. 
Okay, so you play all the that you play the sounds at different volumes and then you play different frequencies. As yes, well. that's correct. So we play different frequencies because we know speech is made up of a variety of frequencies. It's not just one tone and one frequency. So we test a range of frequencies where speech lies, and in order to determine is the child able to hear within what we call the normal category or the norms, which will allow speech to be heard, understood, and discriminated. Okay. So now every child from three to six, should they be having this full hearing test like you're having? It is definitely preferable. Okay. So a lot of uh, practices and audiologists will set up a protocol, and, and a gold standard for the protocol is that you can only discharge a child from your practice and really say you no longer need a return to the audiologist once you have established two consistent audiograms, so two graphs which are reliable that indicate the child's hearing. So essentially, once they pass their OAEs at birth and they pass their OAEs in subsequent follow-ups, you then want to attempt to do a full hearing test, i.e. the audiogram, and once you can see your audiogram is reliable and the hearing is within the normal limits, then they are free to be discharged from services. Okay, so most child—I uh, mean, to be honest, most parents aren't unfortunately going to bring their kids to for a yearly test. So most schools, if not all schools, have uh, hearing screening tests. Is this the same as um, sitting in the booth at? Uh it's certainly not as sensitive because it's not in a soundproof booth and therefore the criteria do, does need to be altered slightly. But it is certainly beneficial and much better than not screening at all. So a lot of audiologists are on a very big drive currently to get as many schools to participate in hearing screening programs. And it allows the services to become much more accessible and affordable to parents because ultimately you can get a screening done at a more affordable rate than perhaps a full hearing test. And a full hearing test isn't always indicated. So we definitely encourage parents, if your school sends out a flyer indicating a a hearing screening, please sign your children up and participate in a program because it's, again, non-invasive, not traumatic at all for the child. And it gives you a lot of information as to how your child is hearing. So what do you actually do then at school when you do a screening test? Every audiologist will generally follows different protocols. Um, at Hear Care Plus specifically, we do do otoscopy where we look inside the ear again to check for those foreign objects or any infection. We do a tympanogram where we test the middle ear. And in children 0 to 3, we do an OAE, which is that automated test. And after three years, we do try and do the pure tone test where they listen for the bird and clap their hands. Okay, so you do that for every child at the school? For every child who signs okay. up, yes. And then uh, when do you refer? When do you know where to refer? So we the screening protocol, so when you're not in a soundproof booth, the child needs to pass at 25 decibels. So if we find that a child is not passing at more than two frequencies in one or two ears, then we will refer to an audiologist for a full hearing test. We also refer if a child doesn't pass on the tympanogram. So if we do see fluid in the middle ear or negative pressure in the middle ear, we will refer to an ENT or a general practitioner for further management. And often parents and schools aren't quite sure why we're referring to the GP or the ENT for for the non-pass on the tympanogram. We really encourage you to be in touch with your audiologist or your hearing care professional to question that and to follow up on it because 
if you do leave fluid in the middle ear, it can develop into a more severe infection and it can have long-standing consequences, whereas if it is dealt with timelessly, often these hearing losses or the damage can be temporary and can be mitigated. I always tell my patients that fluid in the middle ear, the children might not complain at all. It's often picked up incidentally because it's not an infection. It's clear non-infected fluid in the ear. And this fluid can cause three problems. Well, one, it can be painful. The child might um, feel like their head's underwater. Two, they're not hearing properly because now your air can't pass through the fluid quickly, um, pass through the fluid like it would normally your sound, sorry, should I say, cannot pass through the fluid. That's not meant to be there. And the next thing is that it can cause hearing loss. Your eardrum's not vibrating properly because there's fluid behind it. And uh, that's why it is. Once you've had your screening test, it's so important to go and get it checked out because, as we say, it is reversible sometimes by medication and sometimes by intervention by something that is called grommets. So um, why after six do you stop doing audiology screenings? So from about six years, that the eustachian tube, which is essentially what drains any fluid from the middle ear down into the throat and for the body to reabsorb, that eustachian tube reaches adult maturity, which then assumes a horizontal position and gra- gravity can do the job of pulling the fluid out. So from you six mean a vertical, years... a more vertical position from horizontal, I think? Yes, you're correct. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Apologies for that. So... Essentially, the fluid then drains easier, so we find that hearing ear infections are way less common after the age of six years. So we'll see that the incidence in a child becomes much less, and we notice that children kind of, what we say, they outgrow their ear infections as that eustachian tube becomes more mature. Okay, so obviously the people who maintain in their life uh, eustachian tube dysfunction just genetically there or from uh, previous medical problems, they have eustachian tube problems. When should normal people, people without these problems, have a hearing tests? What risks or situations would you say uh, warrant people going to see their audiologist? So once a child has passed that stage, unless they have any specific symptoms such as blocked ears, difficulty hearing, pain in their ears, sudden change in their hearing, then it is not essential to visit an audiologist annually. For an adult, we recommend that you resume annual hearing tests from the age of 55 and onwards because from 55 we start to see the onset of age-related hearing losses. Another risk factor would be for individuals who are exposed to noise either recreationally or occupationally. So any instance where you are exposed to loud noise on a frequent basis, best to visit your audiologist annually to A, monitor your hearing and B, look into different solutions for hearing protection. Okay, what does noise do um, to the ear? Essentially loud noise can damage the we find little hair cells inside the cochlea and being exposed to sound of very high intensity can damage those hair cells in the cochlea, which then results in two main symptoms. The first being hearing loss and the second is a rather annoying and disturbing phenomenon known as tinnitus. And tinnitus can present as a ringing, a buzzing, a whooshing sound and generally when someone presents with tinnitus, it is a red flag that there is some damage occurring within the cochlea. Okay, so when you see these people and come to you for a test, uh, are the young, uh, older children, young adults, teenagers, adults, 
Is it the same test that you do in the birth? Yes. So once again, we'll go through the full drill of the otoscopy, the tympanogram, and then we'll put them into a booth for a pure tone hearing test. Okay, fine. Uh, let's go now to over 55s. What starts happening to the ear when people get older? So once again, it's the hair cells in the cochlea which start to degenerate. And unfortunately, there's no way of regenerating those hair cells. So um, the hearing hearing loss will start to present. And hearing loss is very subtle and it's very gradual. It's very rare that someone will wake up in the morning and all of a sudden they can't hear. So that, yeah, so I don't know if you want to touch on that. Yeah, we can. They, while we're on it, we'll digress. There's something called sudden sensory neural hearing loss or person just will... Um, wake up suddenly and they cannot hear. So the most common cause for that is wax impaction. People have wax in their ear and maybe the wax then falls um, into a a way that it blocks the entire canal or the person has a shower or bath and the last remaining little uh, way of air, of sound coming in gets blocked by water, is um, blocked and then they come in either to you or to me or to an ENT or a GP that they cannot hear. And you hope they have that one because then you can just remove the wax and for them you've uh, changed their lives. They can hear all of a sudden. But uh, if it's involved in a nerve that all of a sudden they can't hear, that's much more uh, difficult to deal with. So what do you do if a person comes in? Yes, it's very important that if someone does wake up in the morning and they have a sudden hearing loss or even notice it at any point in the day to not wait. Rather go and see your ENT or audiologist right away and the reason being is that there could possibly be an inner ear infection and then your ENT will be able to um, diagnose that and will be able to prescribe medication which can prevent further damage to the cochlea or to the nerve and can either prevent further hearing loss or slow down the progression of the hearing loss. Um, And we notice that quick intervention and quick treatment can be very, very successful, whereas if you leave it for a week or two, often by the time you get to the ENT or the audiologist, the damage has been done, and then it becomes a permanent hearing loss. Okay. So how does age-related hearing loss present? I know it's more progressive, but what else do patients usually complain of? So the most common way that hearing loss presents is difficulty when it comes to age-related hearing loss is difficulty hearing in crowds so when there's more than two to three speakers in a room or there's background noise then speech becomes difficulty being able to um work out where localize where in a room sound is coming from becomes quite tricky with an age-related hearing what, loss. Is, is it just because of the distracting noises or what's the... So essentially age-related hearing loss normally falls within the high frequencies and then the brain needs to sort out... Essentially we don't hear with our ears, we actually hear with our brains. So the ear is just the conduit to the brain. It takes the message up to your brain and when there is a hearing loss your brain struggles to decipher what is background noise, what is a signal that it wants to ignore and what is the speech and it needs to sift between the two which becomes more of a struggle when there is a hearing loss present Okay, we're going to take a short ad break we've got Romy Markle, audiologist from Hear Care Plus at us we're talking hearing loss through all the ages, we'll be right back This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam pharmacists who care Welcome back to High FM 101.9 High FM. This is your Disc Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We're speaking to audiologist Romy Markle from Hear Care Plus. We're busy talking about hearing loss. 
through the ages, and we're speaking about age-related hearing loss. So just before the break, we said that people uh, over the age of 55 should be having a yearly hearing test, and they might start noticing that their hearing's going down in um, the where there's background noises or where there's more than one person speaking. Often patients will say to me when they go out for dinner, they can't keep a track of conversation and what's on the t- um, what's going on at the table. Also, very common for a spouse to say, or husband to wife, or wife to a husband, that you know you can't hear me when I'm calling you. Do the, what are, what other situations have you been uh, put in? So fascinatingly enough, it's most often the patient themselves who notices their hearing loss last. So it's generally the family, the friends, the neighbor, the work colleague who actually needs to point it out to the person themselves that they are not hearing everything. So you know, hearing loss is still very highly stigmatized. We as audiologists are fighting very difficult, very, a very big battle in bringing out this, bringing down the stigma towards hearing loss and bringing down the stigma towards interventions for hearing loss. So there could be a level of stigma and denial, which is leading to patients not noticing themselves for but as mentioned before, often it's quite subtle and it's quite gradual and therefore they don't notice it themselves and it's everybody else around them that's noticing it. Yeah, I've found that as well. Often patients will only cut at the end and say, I'm, ha- I'm finding that I have to ask everyone to repeat what they're saying because they don't realize often that they'll be reading people's lips while they're speaking so they think that they're hearing but uh, they're actually not. And uh, one of my patients who came to me the other day, very interestingly, said that around the Shabbos table he finds it the hardest because people will speak to him and he can't hear or can't localize. And only he always misses the first part of every sentence because once he's then localized who's uh, speaking, it's already been a few seconds, and then he zones in kind of on their mouths and see what uh, to see what they were saying. And then by that time, he's missed the first part of the sentence. And I think people underestimate the amount of mental energy that it requires to follow a conversation when there's a hearing loss. So as mentioned, that people report that they miss the first bit of the sentence and then they have to concentrate so hard to fill in the gaps and fill in the, the missing pieces. There was actually a very interesting study done with a bunch of uh, businessmen or, and women um, in the corporate world who were reporting high levels of corporate burnout and corporate stress. And they then tested their hearing, and then they did a whole bunch of tests. I don't know how they test their stress levels, etc. And they found that um, for the pa- for the the cohort who actually presented with a hearing loss, there was a whole bunch who presented with a hearing loss, and they then did an intervention on the hearing loss and gave it a few months and repeated the tests, and they found that a lot of people who were presenting with like corporate burnout and stress, once they fixed the hearing loss, those stress levels reduced greatly, and the reports of corporate burnout was greatly reduced. So it was being mistaken for for being burnout and stress when in actual fact it was hearing loss but it was requiring so much mental energy to still maintain your function in the workplace that these people were burning out wow wow okay so what do we what do we do for hearing loss and uh, age related hearing loss at this age so unfortunately there's no medications or in most cases surgeries that allow us to um mitigate hearing loss or return hearing to normal but there are amazing hearing devices which are known as 
hearing aids and technology has come so far in allowing better quality in terms of sound. The aesthetic element of hearing aids has greatly improved. The manufacturers are constantly moving towards making hearing aids look better, feel better, and most importantly, sound better. Okay. Do you want to take us through um, what hearing aids do, basically? Essentially, a hearing aid is made up of a microphone, a speaker, an amplifier, so it will take the sound that is coming into the ear and amplify it to make it louder. What technology has allowed is for the hearing aid to now filter out certain sounds and only amplify the sounds that it wants to. So essentially the purpose of the hearing aid is to amplify speech while essentially blacking out or blocking out the background noise. And that's where technology has come leaps and bounds, whereas before the hearing aid just made everything louder, whereas now we're able to really focus and zone in on speech and not focus on the irritating sounds in the background. And you can also focus in on certain frequencies that patients are missing. Most certainly. So what we do is we take, we do a full hearing test and we take the results of that hearing test and we upload it onto the computer, onto the software, and that then programs up the hearing aid according to that patient's specific hearing loss. So you can't just pick up your neighbor or your spouse's hearing aid and expect to hear beautifully with it. It needs to be programmed specifically for your hearing loss to zone in on those frequencies where you're having trouble hearing. So um, another thing on age-related hearing loss, I know mostly it's the high frequencies that go first. And so often it's uh, women's voices or things that other things. What else can you think of that's uh, yes, so frequency? Yes, so a lot of people come in and they complain to us that they're struggling to hear their grandchildren. Yeah. And the most common complaint is children these days, this generation, they just speak too fast or they mumble. But in essence, it's actually the, the frequency where children's, most children speak in a more high-pitched voice. And with an age-related loss, that's where... The, those are the frequencies affected, and therefore the grandchildren and the children are the voices which become more difficult. Okay, sometimes I found also uh, women's voices and spouses especially get uh, blocked out. And also with this high-frequency age-related hearing loss, I've also seen that you can get um, a high-pitched tinnitus or an annoying sound. Would hearing aids help with that as well? Yes, so we find that patients report a very high level of relief from their tinnitus when they are fitted with a hearing aid. So most certainly um, tinnitus can be relieved by the use of a hearing aid when there's a hearing loss. Uh, unfortunately, the flip side is when you take the hearing aid out at night, the tinnitus does return, but it certainly does allow for relief during the day. The other factor is that, again, technology has come so far that most hearing aid uh Manufacturers these days have got tinnitus programs and tinnitus mitigators that are inbuilt into the hearing aid, and that just needs to be activated on the software by your audiologist. Wow, it's unbelievable, the technology. What else um, can you tell me about hearing in different situations with hearing aids? I know that um, can, you know, for children in school or for um, cell phones, things that weren't possible before, now the technology has made possible. Technology has really allowed patients to engage with their hearing aids in a much more user-friendly and active manner. The hearing aid user is no longer passive in the process. They are rather an active user of their hearing aids. So we have wonderful apps that have been developed by each hearing aid manufacturer, and most hearing aids are compatible with a big variety of cell phones. And we found that we can load up an app and con 
connect the hearing aid to the cell phone, which allows you to really be engaged in a variety of uh, different environments. So you could go into a restaurant and change your hearing aid onto a specific restaurant program, which is more geared towards the background noise. You don't want to hear the cappuccino machine. You don't want to hear the waiter taking the order at the next table. You just want to hear your companions who are sitting with you. Um, and with regards to children in the school environment, there's amazing features that Bluetooth has allowed where we can add what we call FM systems, so systems where the teacher, for example, can wear a microphone on her lapel or on her jacket or, or even just around her neck, and it allows the teacher's voice to go into the child's hearing aid, which allows the child to then have access to the teacher in a much more concise manner and blocks out the very noisy environment of a typical classroom. Romy, how do you decide which hearing aid is for which person? That's a great question, and very often I get patients who will walk into my room and they'll tell me, what's the best hearing aid? And there really isn't a one-size-fits-all um, answer or solution to that question. It really is very patient-specific. And because there is such a great variety of brilliant hearing aids and brilliant brands of hearing aids on the market, it's very, very important to treat every patient as an individual. So what I always say is that we need to look at a patient's Firstly and primarily, their audiological needs. So how severe is the hearing loss? Which frequencies are affected? And how is the hearing loss impacting on their actual hearing and functioning? And the second thing that we look at is their environmental um Characteristics. So are we looking at a very busy businessman who's interacting in a variety of environments, sitting around a boardroom, having meetings in restaurants? Are we looking at a more elderly person who's quite isolated, living in a frail care system, uh, frail care environment where they're only interacting with maybe one or two nurses and one or two friends on a daily basis? Or are we looking at a very active six-year-old in a playground who needs to hear their teacher and wants to hear their peers? So we look at the environment. Um, we always take aesthetics into account. Patients can walk into my room and say, I really don't care how the hearing aid looks. Just give me what's comfortable and what's best. Whereas for other people, it really has a very big impact on their self-esteem and they want something that's going to be aesthetically appealing. And then we always do look at budget also because you do need to work within patients' budgets and hearing aids vary greatly in the cost depending on the technology that you're getting. So we look, we weigh up all of those factors in order to make the best decision for each individual. Okay, and uh, typically I know most of us have seen hearing aids, the ones that sit behind your ears. Um, then there used to be this big mold, plastic mold in your ear. How have hearing aids changed and what types of actual hearing aids do you get? I'm um, saying how they, how they look and how they fit. So we've progressed so beautifully in this regard. When we talk about the style, when your audiologist discusses the style of your hearing aid with you, that's discussing how it looks. So you get the first type of hearing aid, which is called an in-the-ear hearing aid, an RTE. Your in-the-ear hearing aid, most people have seen them. They're like those little beige, beanie-looking uh, instruments. That sits right in the ear, and all the technology is in the ear. So the whole hearing aid sits in the ear. Um, the, there's pros and cons to each style. The con of that is that your ear canal is a warm and moist environment and hearing aids are technology. And as we know, technology and warmth and moisture are not always a great combination. So RTEs are not always an ideal option, although aesthetically patients might like them because they're not so visible. They do come with some concerns. 
Your next style is called a receiver in the ear. So it actually looks very similar to your behind the ear. So most of the components of the hearing aid sit behind the ear with a very thin wire going down the side of the ear and into the ear canal. And the receiver, just the speaker, sits inside the ear canal. The advantage of that is that the speaker being so sitting in the canal gives you a good what we call the signal-to-noise ratio. So getting a little bit technical here, but it allows us to have a little bit more access to speech and cut out that noise. Um, the the receiver in the ear, so the only part of the technology that sits in the ear is the receiver. So if there's exposure to moisture and warmth and the components break down, it's not as costly of a repair as within in the ear. And your last style is your behind the ear. So that's where all the technology sits behind the ear, and you just have a thin tube, which is essentially the conduit for the sound, which then goes into the ear canal. So your care and your maintenance is the lowest on your BTE. You're behind the ear. You're behind the ear. Okay. So um, how do patients decide? You mentioned a whole lot of different um, factors that you take into account. Can they try them out? So some audiologists do allow for trials, so where you yeah, you meet up with your audiologist and you have your hearing test and they allow either, there's two concepts, an in-office trial where they try out the hearing aid in the office. So that can be a little bit limiting because you're obviously not exposed to the background noise of a busy restaurant. And other audiologists do allow for a trial period where you wear the hearing aid, say, for 5, 10 days and see whether this is something that you feel is beneficial in your life before you actually pursue the purchase of the hearing aid. Okay, fine. At your practice, what do you, you do? Do you prefer them to try them out or? Again, it's quite patient specific. So if someone walks into our room and they're quite certain that they know they've got a hearing loss and they, they are not in denial about the process and they are engaged and they want to address their hearing loss, it's not always necessary to do a trial. Trials can sometimes create a bit of confusion, especially if you're trying more than one brand. So I think that there's a very specific time and place to do a hearing aid trial, but our practice does offer trials. That is a possibility. Okay. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to wrap up your Discam Medical Monday with audiologist Romy Markle. We'll be back after this. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. We are speaking to Romy Markle. She's an audiologist at Hair Care Plus. We've spoken about hearing loss in children and adults. Spoken about hearing aids. We're going to discuss briefly before we wrap up uh, dizziness. Now, when when patients come in and say they're dizzy, there's so many different causes for dizziness. But am I right to say that audiologists and ENTs would only deal with a dizziness more called vertigo? Do you want to explain um, why and how a pa- why would a patient come see an audiologist when they're dizzy? So essentially, the inner ear has got an organ which is actually responsible for balance and for maintaining balance. So it's your what we call your vestibular system. And when your vestibular system has been affected, say for example by an infection, your balance can be off which can result in vertigo and dizziness. Essentially, once a medical practitioner has ruled out other causes of dizziness or imbalance, such as blood pressure issues or blood sugar levels fluctuating, and we know that it's pointing more towards the ear side of things, then a referral to your ENT and and or audiologist will allow us to determine exactly the site or the cause of that balance and dizziness and then taking it from there how to treat it. Okay, so... What classically 
I know ear dizziness or vertigos. Are there, I'll say to the patient, is the room spinning around you or are you spinning around the room? And yes, then classically you know that it's, it's from the ear. So we need to main, uh, check, is the ear functioning properly? So we start off with a normal ear exam and uh, a hearing test. And then there's other different uh, tests you can do, some at the bedside and then some very specialist tests. I know that not audio, all audiologists uh, do do vertigo and uh, dizzy tests, is that correct? Yes, so again, technology has really come amazingly far in allowing us to see what's going on in the inner ear. So this is a bit more of a niche speciality, and as you mentioned, not every audiology practice is able to offer this, but we do have uh, ways of testing. There's a machine called a VNG, which essentially allows us to determine what is going on in the inner ear. Um, by running these again objective tests so um, patient doesn't always have to do or respond much but it's rather the technology and the machines which is determining what's going on in the inner ear and once we're able to determine where in the inner ear is being affected then generally it's not the scope of practice for the audiologist to always manage that inner ear problem we do work hand in hand with the ENTs to manage um What's going on? The audiologists, there are audiologists who do vestibular rehab, so that is where certain exercises and rehabilitation is put into place to allow the patient to overcome their dizziness or their vertigo. Okay, I mean, I guess you could do an entire show probably on on dizziness and and vertigo (laughs) with those people who do specialize in it, but just the take-home point from this, if you're having... uh, hearing loss that's associated with nausea and vomiting or dizziness and uh, vertigo you spinning around the room the room spinning around you good idea to go and see either your audiologist your gp or your ent to sort it out romy where can we get hold of you and so, uh, you can supply us with some contact details we've got a website www.hearecareplus or one word .co.za we also have a Facebook page please come on over and like and share our page and you can also call our rooms we've got five branches located all around Johannesburg so easily accessible in the north the south the, we- the west and the east um, but you could call us on 011-485-0070 and we can always help directly and point you in the direction of your closest here care plus audiologist all right thank you very much for joining us i'm dr dean gerson your host on disc medical monday thank you romy michael audiologist at here care plus for coming in and uh, giving your time to us and we'll be back with you next week hope you all have a good week